Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, John, it's your turn. Uh, Tell us about your story. I brought the story The Frog Prince by Robert Coover. We did a story by him a long time ago with Rob when Rob brought it. It was The Babysitter. Oh, that was his? That was Robert Coover. the same guy, yeah. Yeah, he is a weird guy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is different than The Babysitter, obviously, but still weird. <laughs> Very. The prince was adorable. All the girls at the bridge club, squirming with envy, said so, though you could still see the effects his previous residence had had on him. He had heavy-lidded eyes and a wide mouth like a hand puppet's. His complexion was a bit off, and his loose-fitting skin was thin and clammy. His semen had a muddy taste, like the pond he came from, and his little apparatus was disappointing. But his tongue was amazing. It could reach the deepest recesses, triggering sensations she'd never known before. His crown was not worn like a hat. It grew out of his head like horns and sometimes got in the way, but his tongue was long enough for detours and tickled other parts on the path in. It gave him not so much a lisp as a consonantal slurp, making gibberish out of his sweet nothings, but talking was never the main thing between them. Sick. I mean, I should have read the first paragraph. Yeah, I think I know why you picked the second. <laughs> it sets the scene, right? Yeah, the frog's a horny little, he's a horny <laughs> little guy. So how did you come across this or had you read it before? I had not read this before. I was reading a book of interviews with John Gardner and he oh, kept okay. referencing uh, Robert Coover. Well, he kept calling him Bob Coover. And I was like, hey, isn't <laughs> that the babysitter guy? I should read more of his stories. So I looked up some stories and uh, read this one and said, hey, let's do that on the podcast. It's so weird. We talk all the time about how stories like this that are doing something weird, especially when you kind of have to like suspend your disbelief for a little bit, you know? Obviously, this is not real, but it's also not like sci-fi, really. They're not trying to convince you that this is a thing that is happening. You're just supposed to be like along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that when you are taking an approach like this, you ha- you should probably uh, dip out a little earlier than you planned. You know, you can't like hit on all the notes that maybe you had envisioned before you started where you're like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if... that's right it's like the perfect length for something like this and with stories that are just trying to do something clever i guess or interesting or different i don't know about you but for me if the writing's good enough and this is and the premise is unique enough right Mm -hmm. you're kind of like you're reading along you're like ha 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 weird weird (laughs) but then the kind of point sneaks up on you yeah so it really wasn't until like the very last paragraph the very last paragraph that you realize that maybe there was a point all along or maybe he just maybe bob just inserted this point like at the end because he knew he couldn't really write a frog prince story that long or maybe this has been like a metaphor the whole time whatever it is it's like a metaphor that's like gone over the edge a little bit right because then we're like snapped back to reality and he's like yeah so after she was done <laughs> kissing the frog prince uh she got back with her ex and yeah <laughs> and then we're like, oh, right. Okay. So this is not just a, a trick that the writer's pulling off. There's maybe like a message too. And I was really into it. I like stories like this because they are so short. Like they're also not going to like belabor that point. Right. So we don't even, maybe we could reread this and see that there are hints at that takeaway at the end there. The, the idea that she gets back with an ex and I don't want to spoil it. I don't know. I love spoiling it though. I think the point of our podcast is to spoil it. We, have, okay. we assume of the listener that they went and followed the link we provided in the yeah, show. Yeah. Right. Story. 
Yeah, my dad definitely <laughs> read it. Okay, I'm going to read the last paragraph then. It says, in the end, she got in touch with her ex and told him that she had been hooked on a weird drug, but had kicked it now. And if he'd like to come back, she'd welcome him. He was also lonely, smoking and drinking too much, his own affairs having come to nothing. And so gratefully, he returned and they found a certain contentment, living more or less happily ever after, which is what now is while one's in it. So, you know, the point being that I and I love this point happily ever after until your characters are dead. You don't know that. So I get I get really upset in journalism, especially when uh, someone is missing and they'll say something like never heard from again. But we've also never recovered a body. And I'm like, this is inaccurate. This is inaccurate. You're also predicting the future. You yeah. just say like they haven't been seen since. And so I love that this is like this clever, like turn of phrase where it's like happily ever after. Well, they think that now they feel that way now. But we also know that she felt that way with this frog prince who from the paragraph you read we know they don't even like talk to each other they just do weird tongue shit that's right so wasn't gonna last (laughs) and you can kind of predict that but anyway so yeah i like that it's a short little experimental type story and that matching that whole tone and brevity is this point at the end where it's like yeah you think you're happy while you're happy you think you're going to be happy forever while you're happy and then it's done it just ends and it's I don't know that I'll uh, remember the ending of the story when I recall this Frog Prince story, no. right? But I think think I'm just going to think of the weird tongue shit, right? Yeah. (laughs) And and I also like there's a scene like a couple paragraphs in where he's like on her back the way like tree frogs like sit like on the wall of your house or whatever. They're just like yeah, holding on. Like I loved it. That he's so good at painting that you see it so clearly. Yeah, that image and and with images like that, maybe you're familiar with them. And at least like you and I were with like those things are all over Florida, right? These like Cuban tree frogs are invasive and they feel that way. They're just like gripping on everything. that way and the talent of a writer is to make you see what you already know differently yes so that's all great but yeah back to my point i won't remember this ending but every time i if i reread this story it will be as delightful as it was the first time to realize that there was kind of a little bit of a point and it is kind of all going back to this fairy tale uh genre right happily ever after frog prince whatever yeah this story played a lot with that i i love the you know he obviously was like i'm gonna play around with the uh the fairy tale story the uh, frog prince the prince frog Happily ever after, all that kind of stuff. We're gonna go into this, and it uh, it really works well. I found the ending. Um, I, I don't. I'm not saying that what you're pointing out isn't there. I just I felt it more emotionally than I did uh, thinking about it as a kind of message or a takeaway. Is like more yeah, yeah, yeah. Of her emotional journey to get to yeah, that point for sure. Yeah, which. You know, this reminded me, obviously reminded me of the stories like Town of Birds that we did on the podcast and um, Donald Barnaby, we did the school, the one with the, uh, just the weirdness. It's like stories where strange things happen, like in Town of Birds, everyone's turning into a bird, right? And I remember when we talked about Town of Birds, I think you, you had looked it up that the author said, oh, it doesn't have a meaning. It doesn't mean anything. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I think this one has a little more, is a little more deliberate in Reaching like the point, like you pointed out at the end, or having that journey to reach that moment at the end. Town of Birds had that, had that like moment at the end, but it did, it wasn't um, like we talked about in that episode, it didn't have like a specific metaphorical interpretation that you, that was obvious for it, right? Yeah, that one was disappointing. I remember because I spent a little more time than normal trying to <laughs> decipher the message. I was like, I think it's a meth addiction riddling the town. And then <laughs> I like right. Google it. I was like, you're kidding. <laughs> you're kidding. <laughs> you, you jerk. 
<laughs> but at the same time, you don't have to read this as a metaphor. You don't have to read this no, yeah. in that way. You can take it all literally. Like right. that she literally had spent this relationship with this frog, right. frog dude, and then realize at the end that happiness is just, you know, Waiting. what you have at the moment. <laughs> and yeah, like she doesn't have to chase happiness. She can be content. Yeah. Well, I think, too, there's a really strong emphasis when they're talking about this frog guy on the fact that they're having what sounds like great sex, but she's also high the entire time. Yes. Because she's tripping off his literal toad body, which you can do. You can go into the wild, I guess, and lick certain frogs. I wouldn't do it. (laughs) So I would argue like she probably wasn't happy with this frog guy, but she didn't know it. You know, this is just like a she was using him as a balm in a certain way. She probably knew he wasn't enough. So it's like, yeah, happiness is temporary, but also she was delusional. And there's that little section, too, where um, she talks about how even the frog is thinking to himself, this is not how I thought it would be because he misses being a frog. <laughs> yeah. And so she, he, asked, he asked her in a slurping way if she was happy where she was. Oh, yes, totally. She exclaimed breathlessly. This is like in the middle of her high. You know, she's like enjoying everything that's happening in that moment. And then that's when he leaves. He left yeah. her there, went back to the pond to crawl into the mud. Yeah. He's like, I'd rather just be a regular frog. Yeah. I can't really think of anything else I've read that like, because this is such a common uh, reference from fairy tales, the frog prince. Yeah. And this is like something that people talk about to this day. Like you got to kiss a bunch of frogs. It's, it's a metaphor. so common. Yeah. Yeah. We hear it all the time. And I really can't think of a time when I've heard a new twist on it, you know? So this is fun that way. Yeah. One thing you kind of touched on it. You meant, you said the phrase as a writer, you're supposed to make people see things that they're familiar with. I don't remember if you said in a new way, but I think the the key to that is like when you read it described that way, you said, oh yeah, that's exactly how it is. And I always yeah, knew exactly. that, but it was never yeah. pointed out to me. So you're not like learning something. You're just learning to appreciate what you've already seen yeah. in a cool way. Like this is one of the first lessons I learned in writing, like in high school, because I remember reading books and I would underline phrases and I was underlining them because they all rang true to me and I just didn't know that other people were articulating things that I had thought <laughs> not to compare myself to the lengths of the Bronte sisters but when I read Jane Eyre I was like yeah 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 and <laughs> obviously I'm not the first person to have like thought some of this stuff but when you read it and uh, you feel as if like you recognize some truth you know or somebody has like articulated something that like you said you know you know this but now you're seeing it and you just make Maybe you haven't even talked to another person about it that way. It's like when, you know, you're watching a movie and you're like, this reminds me of such and such. And somebody's like, yes. And you just feel like in that moment, like totally understood. So yeah, you're right. He's describing something that we all know. We're not necessarily learning something new, but like, it's like the joy of like recognizing it and seeing it similarly. And all, and you've never described his little frog fingers that way. But now that Robert Coover has, you're like, yep, yep, I know. I know they're weird little suction cups. It isn't. I mean, we've never seen a frog turn into a person, you know, and he's describing it as a, um, it's an incomplete metamorphosis. He looks weird. He acts weird. So he's like still froggy as a person. He's got loose skin, you know, his eyes bulge and little crown and stuff. But what he's just 
the way he's describing all this is like you see the frogginess. It makes you appreciate, makes you see frogs very clearly. And so, but you, even though you're seeing it on this like human frame, that's kind of just like draped over. The fact that he can do that with something that is entirely new and yet yes. still feel familiar to us. I think that is like one of the, that's like a goal. That's a, a goal as a writer is like to create something brand new that nobody has ever thought of and yet make it feel as if when people read it, they're like, this is the absolute truth about this thing. And I should have always known. Right. And that, or uh, like I said, when I'm reading like Jane Eyre, thinking to myself, dude, she gets me. She gets me. You know, like you're not even like reading this Coover story and going like, wow, what a brilliant genius. You're like, yeah, he gets it. He's a frog guy too. Like we're, we're the same. <laughs> There's like a camaraderie, you know, because you think that the two of you are the one like in this commune for this moment in time where you're like, yep, yep, he gets it. I get it. This is fire. This is good content. And really, like you said, there's probably tons of people that have thought this. It's just like the writer's powers and articulating it. Yeah. That's like the hardest thing to talk about in the workshop is you read a story. It's like, it's good. It's fine. But... (laughs) I don't necessarily think you have you you haven't expressed like that I like you're not you're not really showing us the scene the characters the situation in that kind of writerly way you know right. it's really hard to figure out exactly how to give the feedback of look again you know oh sure yeah I mean you can edit this out but I know I remember like always talking about like you know I I really pride myself on finding the right word and I'm like it's more than that it's more than the right adjective you know it's like have you actually seen it in a different way it'd be different if like coover were like looking at the ocean and like comparing it to something that we had never heard this metaphor for like i don't care about that i really don't care like that you found the perfect lineup of words for something but he's describing like a situation too like this weird uh trippy boyfriend that's like a placeholder in your life I mean, the whole thing is creative. Yeah. Coming up with a situation. A lot of times people, inexperienced writers think that it comes down to describing something with a unique set of words or adjectives. And it's really not that. It's not just language that we're talking about here. That's right. Yeah. It's not just the language. I mean, beautiful language is part of it, but you have to see it first. And see is a metaphor, obviously, because it's not merely visual. But I I think of um, the first story we ever did in this podcast, episode one. Uh, the midnight zone where the line that you pointed out was birds sent their questions into the air or something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those aren't fancy words. No, it's just a different way of describing bird song in the morning. You know, I remember that now. Yeah. But it's such a, a new way to think about it and a really familiar thing. The other part of the workshop thing is like when I bring in something to the store to the workshop, I don't get that feedback either, right? I want yeah. the feedback of am I seeing this in a new, interesting way? Am I describing it in, in those kinds of ways? And the same reason I have trouble giving that feedback to other writers, they probably have the same trouble giving that feedback to me. It's like it's hard to like describe to say, look again, did I capture that correctly yeah. or in an interesting way? Or do I only think I did? Like, did I fall on a cliche that I'm not really noticing? So it's a limitation of the workshop. It's also, I think, a limitation of our capacity to teach because how do you teach someone to have that kind of eye? That's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you said, it's it's hard to tell someone to revisit something. And I think the reason it is hard to tell someone to revisit something because it hasn't come across as like unique enough or exciting enough or different enough is because 
there's not some alternative suggestion. All you can do by telling a writer that is point out the fact that they're not real good at this. <laughs> they don't have a unique voice necessarily or a unique eye. That doesn't mean that they can't be like a great writer either. It's just with a writer like Coover, you can't hope to mimic that. You just hope to be able to like see the world the way he sees it briefly, you know? And maybe every once in a while, there's something that you do see differently. Well, yeah, that's like you can enjoy the way he sees it in his while you're reading his story. But then you shouldn't go then to your story and try to see it in the same way he did. You have to find your own way of seeing it. And that's the difficulty is figuring out. I think it's a it's a matter of um, recognizing that you might not be seeing it as clearly as you want to and that you do need to work at that. Because we have so much media, we can see things in like a TV way. Like there's a lot of kind of visual shortcuts that are given to us in TV, YouTube videos, movies Right. that we then kind of when we're thinking about something, we're going to unconsciously apply that visual shortcut and then we're going to write it as if it's like, this is what I'm seeing for myself in my head as part of the story and not recognize that we've translated what's like there through this lens to put on the page. And it's not ours. It's just something that's been given to us. I think the key to it is a lot of introspection and like figuring out what am I actually seeing? What are my biases? What are my uh, assumptions yeah. that I need to discard? You shouldn't write through your assumptions. You should like move them aside and get at what's right there. Maybe that's what Hemingway meant by write one true sentence and then write another one. Is that the truth of it is the actual what you see without all those intervening lenses. I feel like I'm just like going back to our earlier point saying this, but like, I, I don't know if that's like our take, one of our takeaways in this conversation being that like you can revisit something that you've described or whatever part of your story and kind of think to yourself like is, you know, could I think about this a little harder and maybe come up with a better way of saying it? I guess what I want to say is like to caution people, the lesson here, the directive here is not to go add useless metaphor and description throughout your no. story to like make it flowery and to make people think like, wow, your brain works really special. This is really great. Like those are almost like red herrings. You know, we talk a lot about how inexperienced writers, especially will start a story and say like, you know, she pressed her, she like swept a lock of her auburn hair behind her ear. And like, she was wearing a red shirt and the park bench was purple. Like when you point things like that out, the reader pays attention to them and it's usually for nothing. Right. Those are like useless details. And I wouldn't say that a sentence like the one you pointed out, like where the birds sent their questions into the air. That's not useless. It's, I mean, it's it's beautiful and wonderful. And it's not, it doesn't act as like this distracting phrase. It's really hard to point out the kind of language that I think we're talking about. And I do think it's like a, a natural knack that people have. I don't think you can necessarily like teach people how to write a phrase like the bird's sending their questions up. That has to have occurred to you in real life. Not on the page. That's the key. Is yeah. It's not just any old detail. It's the detail. The bird sending their questions is like an encompassing detail. It like it suggests a larger scene. It's like the defining detail, yeah. like the seed of something. So being able to see that, being able to find um to see those important details. I think this was a theme in some of our early episodes too. I remember when we talked about uh, Alice Monroe's story. We talked about details a lot, but figuring out which are the most important. details details that kind of suggest this scene. One of the things I was talking about with the lens thing is like what you talked about, like pushing the lock of hair behind your ear. Like that's something you saw on TV, right? Yeah. 
And then yeah. something you maybe read in like 50 different books. So that's not your own. You didn't see that out in the real world. It's not like the way that it actually played out. That's not the truth of the matter. To go back to Hemingway, the truth of the matter is some other detail that you didn't notice at first impression that you have to like study the scene and figure out what's that true detail that really sets uh, sets it all up. Yeah. So in that way, it's not about the language. Right. It's about seeing the detail and then expressing the detail is where the language comes in. And then that can be done in very simple ways. It doesn't have to be complex metaphors or fl- or like 50 cent words. And I guess now they're inflation. They're like $50 words. I'm trying to think of a writer that I feel like has done this. Like going back to what I said, like you have to have like thought this way about something on your own, not just when you're trying to be clever and sitting down and writing it. I feel like I can read some stories sometimes and think to myself, whoever wrote this thought that they were being real clever in the moment when they sat down and wrote it this way. And they had to maybe think really hard to come up with it. I'm not saying that these are like, that if you have to think hard or you have to try or <laughs> or that like, if writing is anything other than effortless, that it doesn't ring true. It's just, I, I think you can sometimes read someone's work and know that they think that maybe they can sit in a empty room all day and come up with something brilliant. But there's a lot, I think, about being a writer is also observing the world and having your own kind of take and taste and uh, recognition of things, you know? We don't really talk about that, like the writing life. And I don't I don't necessarily have um, tons of insight into that. But I know that there's, you know, writers who write stories about their lives. I mean, Stephen King for one. And they'll tell you yeah. things about like what their writing habits are and how they draw inspiration. And almost none of these books that I've read, at least, are writers that say, and I banged my head against the source for six hours. And then I came up with the perfect phrase, you know? Yeah. They're all really willing to say that they do things outside of writing that inform their writing and I think like Coover has probably seen some frogs in real life you know yeah. and I don't think he went and studied them and he doesn't even have to be like a frog nerd but like he did not sit down and think I'm gonna describe this frog prince thing like you have never seen it before <laughs> I think it probably part of it was brewing in him all along and maybe he's always had a fondness for their little toes you know <laughs> In John Gardner's um, Becoming a Novelist, I remember he talks about the writer's eye. Like he talks about yeah. seeing the world and like he gives an example from his life. He said he like came upon an accident and I, I forget exactly. He said something like um, it gives you some remove from the immediacy of of things because you're like looking at right. it in this writer's way. And he he said he remembered noticing these little details like about how the wound looked and, and different things. But it's just it's a way of, of experiencing things. It's a way of seeing life of being in life that then informs when you go back to that empty room and you're sitting in front of the screen you've had that experience you've seen it so that you can now put it on a page yeah I don't know. Maybe if one of the takeaways would be like that you can romanticize like your own life that way, you know, like while you're out in the world, not writing, you know, you you are a writer at work, you are studying, (laughs) which I wouldn't really encourage. But and it goes back to the whole like write what you know thing. I remember reading uh, Sol Stein in Stein on writing. I think it was he talked about as a young writer, he and a couple other writers would go up. I forget where, like mall or something. And they they had like a place where they could sit and they could see the crowd and they would 
would sit up there and they would watch people and look for little details that kind of suggested the story of that person. I don't think they literally wrote them. I think they told each other like that person there and they tell the story of that person based on the little details they could spot. I think of that so much. Like, I feel like that should be like a writer's workshop field trip. Yeah. You get, they get the group together and go to an airport or something and you sit on a bench and you just watch people and then you, all right, what's that guy's story? Say, well, notice how this and notice this, that means this. That's who his personality based on those details. I think that's like the way that you practice, the way that you can practice and get better at this, uh, having this vision we talked about. Yeah. Um, I would argue that we all have done this, but it's usually from a place of like a judgment, right? <laughs> so there's there's also there's gossip, also like, gossip, the original yeah. storytelling. <laughs> no, for real. I mean, like, um, unless you're like paying attention to people around you and like engaged with all of this and observant, I don't think you have to like people, but you have to be interested in them. You can't really hope to capture a lot of this stuff. I guess my takeaway has nothing to do with what we talked about though. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of those episodes where we go far afield of the, of the story. Yeah. We're not talking about the frog anymore. We're talking about writing in this like lofty way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we touched on this, but I just, I really like how this was a fairy tale concept that we're all extremely familiar with. And yet it was a very fresh take on it. And I don't think you should go out and do something as bizarre as this necessarily, but I'm sure that there are fairy tales that you've always been fond of, and you could probably revisit some aspect of some of it and use it. That was my like immediate thought was if I was going to assign this in like a five minute workshop exercise, everyone can think of a fairy tale that they really like, or you know like a fable even i like fables too yeah those like little stories i i think that's a great kind of like way to come up with stories i remember there was there's always the revenge story like inigo montoya you killed my father prepare to die like he spent 20 years or whatever preparing for this revenge and and i have thought about that over and over again i finally wrote a story because i was like how do i rewrite that story in a different way and so i wrote a story about revenge where it turns out very differently Um, but that was all because of just taking that one little thing yeah and if they're so pervasive in society and then like that one in particular for you is one that you thought about repeatedly i'm sure everyone has something like that and you can either rewrite it or just like i don't know there's probably some aspect of whatever it is for everyone who gets annoyed with happily ever after as the ending of a story like write that story why are you annoyed with happily ever after (laughs) yeah that was my um kind of like kindergarten level uh (laughs) takeaway was you know like what's on the surface of this and what can i do right now so what's your takeaway, John? My takeaway was what we were talking about, just the vision. His yeah. descriptions are so vivid. It speaks to just the writer's eye. And we we over-talked about that. So <laughs> We did. This is yeah. a good one. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash whyisthisgoodpodcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.